You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. So we are wrapping up our series in John 17, end of that. Before we do that, though, I just want to celebrate a little bit of what it is that God did uh, last week. And so it, last year, we had a joint service out in the field with us and three other churches in the area. And so um, there was a huge crowd for that. Um, some of that's wrapped up in COVID and things like that. So if you set that aside, last week, Easter Sunday, is the biggest Easter crowd that we've ever had here. Um, my count, it's awesome, right? My count, um, as best as we can tell, counting kids and volunteers, was 472 people. Um, that's just unbelievable. It's possible that I'm a little off there, but here's the reason I share that with you is because um, it, numbers represent people, and people are the mission, right? And so we're not chasing numbers, but we are chasing down people, people that are close to you and your spheres of influence that we want to be here and to be a part of what it is that God's doing here and to fellowship here and to hear the gospel here. And so we want to celebrate just over in King's Cross Kids alone. We had 80 kids and 20 volunteers last week. That is, and, that's, and none of these kids were there because we stopped at fourth grade. That's just birth through fourth grade, 80 kids over there. And so praise God for what it is um, that he is doing here. The growth in the Cane Hoy Peninsula is just getting started. And if you um, are at all familiar with this area out here, you know that. We, we are at the tip of the spear because this entire community is going to explode. By the time these kids are our age, there is going to be another 25,000 people living out here. And our goal when we planted the church five years ago was to serve the community that was here already and to help prepare for the community that was coming. And so we wanted to help see this community. Uh, we wanted to reach it for the gospel but, or with the gospel, but we also wanted to see it shaped by the gospel. And so you are a part of that, and I hope that that's one of the reasons that you're here is because you feel like, hey, I have an opportunity here to get in on the ground floor and to do something that is going to shape multiple generations of families and young people and musicians and worshipers and for generations to come because of what it is that we are doing um, here now. And so I hope that you feel some of the excitement and the energy that's building in that. If you're brand new and this is your very first Sunday, maybe you've been driving up and down Clements Ferry, you decided to finally swing in. We don't grill every week. I apologize for that. Um, but you are welcome to stay immediately after the service um, and eat some barbecue and a bunch of potluck side dishes with us. Um, and so we hope that you will consider doing that. But more than that, we want to invite you in to be a part of what it is that God is doing here because he is moving. He is on the move here and in this corridor. There are really really good things happening. And so I hope that you will uh, consider being a part of it. It is actually a lot of what John 17, 25, and 26 are about. 
They're about an excitement and an energy and a movement that is about to begin after Jesus' death and resurrection. John 17 contains his final prayer with his disciples. It comes at the end of what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. It's kind of the way that he concludes. And then he he goes out just hours later. He's going to be arrested the next day. He's going to be crucified. So we've arrived at the end of the prayer. It's John 17, 25 and 26. It says this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. It's verse 26 that grabbed me this week as I was preparing. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known in Less than 24 hours from the time he prayed this, Jesus' body will be laying in a tomb. In about 72 hours, he'll be raised. And 40 days after that, he ascends bodily into heaven from which we still look for his return. So as I wrestled with the text... I have three questions that come up, and I hope it's the type of questions you ask as you're reading through the Bible on your own in your own quiet time, that you're meditating on these types of things. My first question is, how does Jesus continue to make God's name known? Like, did he just mean in that 40-day period of time? What does that mean, that he continues to make God's name known? My second question is, how can you and I make his name known. Because remember, the prayer is for Jesus' people, right? It's Jesus' prayer for his people. And so he has prayed all throughout the prayer that, that he and his disciples and all those who would believe after them would be one, that they would be one in, in love and unity and holiness and joy and in mission. And so he isn't just praying this for himself. If we're one with him, then he's praying it for us too. So how is it that you and I can continue to make God's name known. And my third question is, what is the result of that? How does he do it? How can we do it? And what is the result of it? We're going to walk through them one at a time if you're somebody who likes to follow along with the notes. Question number one, how does Jesus continue to make God's name known? And the answer is pretty straightforward. He does it through believers. Does it through believers. This was always the plan. In fact, it has been God's plan since the very beginning. If you went back and you were looking for just this, you'll see it all through the sweep of biblical history. You'll see that it's rooted in God's original call of and covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, 3, he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. You get provisions in the law where God assumes that his people are going to be spiritually influential on those who are around them. So places like Exodus 12, 49, for example. There shall be one law for the native, that is the Hebrew, and for the stranger who sojourns among you. He's saying this this law isn't just for you. There's going to be some people in your spheres of influence. It's for them 
too. There's a presumption of evangelism on the part of God's people. Deuteronomy 31.12. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all of his law. Isaiah 62 and 3. The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light. It's God saying this to his people. In Isaiah 49.6, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, God is prophesying through the prophet Isaiah. He's making these promises about what is it that Jesus' messianic mission to rescue and reconcile people and redeem them out of their sin, reconcile them to God. Who is this mission for? And God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, just. It's too light a thing that you would just do that. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God making his name known through believers is not like some plan B that the Trinity had to scramble around and come up with at the last minute because Israel dropped the ball. This plan A, it was always the plan. It's the only plan. This is the way that God intended for his name to be made known to the whole world. And so when you get to the New Testament then, and you find Jesus saying things like, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or as the Father sent me, even so I send you. Or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that makes total sense. Because God had always been saying that to his people. Just in different ways and at different times. But the message had been the same. I am sending you out to make my name known among people where it isn't known yet. What's amazing about the approach that Jesus takes in particular, if you, as you read through the Gospels, is that Jesus says very clearly and more than once that making God's name known through believers is an even better plan than his own earthly preaching and teaching ministry. Now that... That would cause people to perk up a little bit and lean in a little bit. Because Jesus is saying, me doing this through you is even better than me doing it here myself. So for example, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. He's saying, you're going to do greater things than I've done. You're blown away by my stuff? Wait till the world gets a hold of you. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Pastor J.D. Greer has a book uh, that's entitled Jesus Continued. And the subtitle to the book is Why the Holy Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus beside you. And in it, he talks extensively about how in the book of Acts, what you see is that the ministry that Jesus began to do, he continues to do through the church. 
And that's as true today as it was in the first century when Luke is writing this historical account of the early days of the church. So if you are a Christian, or if you're someone who is considering the claims of Christ, and maybe you will become a Christian, what you have to do at some point is you have to wrap your head around this idea that God's plan to reach the world with the gospel is you. That's his plan. In a very real sense, I think you can take this statement in Jesus' prayer and you can make it personal. Because I think that it's legitimately, it can be applied to Christians everywhere. And so it is as if he's praying, I may known to them your name and I will continue to make it known through Chip. I'll continue to make it known through Travis. I'll continue to make it known. Uh, like th- You understand, like, through Chris, I'll, I'll continue to make these things known. Right? Through Rebecca, through, insert your name. I, Father, I've made these things known. And I'm going to continue to make it known through you. Because the way that Jesus is going to continue to make his name known is through believers. And if you are a Christian or if you will become a Christian, that includes you. Which leads naturally into the second question. Because if that's true, then how do we do that? How can you and I make God's name known? Now, there's a couple ways you can ask that question. One of the ways is tactical. Right? It would be kind of an on the ground. Well, what, what words do I say? Tell me how to have the conversation. Well, how is it that I, I can, you know, some of our ladies have been studying Jude. How can I contend for the faith? Let, let's get down on the ground and talk about the argumentation or the pleas that we make or the stories that we tell. And that is good and useful and helpful. Yes and amen. If you're someone who needs help with that, it would delight us to help you learn how to share your faith with other people. And so just come to us or write on a connection card or email. just say, hey, I'd love some help in, in knowing how to share the gospel. Like you will make our day if you ask us to help you with that. But that's not the way I'm asking the question. I mean it more strategically. So what I mean is, when I say how, I mean, what enables you and I to do that? What makes it possible for you and I to do that? You with me? One person, thank you. (laughs) Let me give you, here's what I mean. So I was 28 years old in April of 2003 when Michael Jordan retired. Imagine, if you will, somebody comes to me and says, um, we would like you to continue the work that he's been doing. <laughs> right? Now, I appreciate you doubting me and getting that on its surface. I am like, I'm from Kentucky, right? I'm supposed to have basketball like in my blood. I'm like the worst Kentucky-born basketball player that you've ever, I'm horrible at basketball. Like when I was a kid um, growing up, uh, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of extra money, right? But, it, you know, there's basketball goals all over everywhere. And so there was a, a, a street light in front of our house, and one day a car hit it and knocked it down. And so my papa went out there and got the entire light pole, and he had cut it down. And then we took a piece of plywood so I could have a basketball goal in my, in my driveway, you know? It was just great. The fence got all dented down because we were trying to dunk off of it. And, you know, so I would just be out there by myself. I'm a little guy, and, you know, I'm 
I'd dribble around, you know, Kyle Macy to win it for the Cats. Three, two, one. You know, I'd, I'd take a shot, and then I'd have to go get the rebound. Three, two, one. And I don't know. Three, two. I just kept, like, taking shot after shot after shot, right, and missing every, like, the Cats would have never won a title if I had been on it. Right, but you understand, like, what Michael Jordan, what, what Jesus is doing is much harder than what Michael Jordan was doing, right? How are we going to continue his work? What enables that? How, like how? Read through the gospel accounts of what it is that Jesus is doing. He's raising people from the dead and saying you're going to do greater works than these. Well, that's intimidating. How is it that we can do that? I see three ways, and they're all right here in John 17. They're being prayed for by Jesus for you. The first one is this. You can make his name known with the Holy Spirit in you. With the Holy Spirit in you, that's the first thing that enables you. In verses 20 and 21, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So what he's saying is, I, I, you know, I, I want them to be in us to fuel this, in, in order to enable them to have the world know that you sent me. Well, how does that work? How does Jesus saying to his Father, you and me and me and you and they and them, or they and us, how does that work? Well, it works because when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, when you repent of your sin and you turn to Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit does a lot of things, but at least two things. He recreates you spiritually. He, he gives you a new heart. Jesus called it being born again in John 3. But he also indwells you. He takes up a place of residence in you. So in Romans 8, 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul urges believers to remember. He says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. He repeats it four times in three verses. And his appeal to the Christians in Rome is, hey, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And he's trying to wake them up to this reality that the Holy Spirit is in them. That power that they saw on display in the resurrection of Christ now resides in them. If you remember, Jesus' earthly ministry did not begin until after his baptism. What happens at the baptism? God the Father speaks, but God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. This is why Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1, hey, you don't do anything. You just hang out for a while until the Holy Spirit comes, which happens in Acts 2. And so think about this. If Jesus' ministry waited for the Spirit, if Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Spirit, how much more yours and mine? If he needed the Spirit, how much more do we? This is why Jesus could say in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Well, if you're people like me and you who were born after he ascended to heaven, that's kind of disheartening. Because he's saying, apart from him, we can't do anything. And where is he? Well, it's not disheartening if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Because now he is with you. And now you can do something. Say, with man, these things that God's asking us to do are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so you are, if you are a Christian, equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to make God's name known. Second, you can make his name known with the church around you. The Spirit in you and the church around you. He says in verse 21 that he's praying that they may all be one so that the world may believe you've sent me. In verse 23, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. It's all plural. It's people. He's praying for his people. He's praying for the church. Now it is surely true that you are saved as an individual. You have to come to faith on your own. No one can believe for you. Students, your parents' faith can't save you. Your spouse's prayers aren't enough to get God to forgive you. We come to the cross as individuals. We have nothing to offer God except repentance. And that has to happen for each person. But you are saved in two the family of God. And so a call to follow Christ is a call to the community of Christ, which is called the church. They go together. You don't get one without the other. They're designed to be together. That's why the scripture refers to the church as the very body of Christ, that he is the head. They are one. And so when Jesus prays for you in John 17, he assumes that you will be in the community he's creating called the church. He assumes that you're going to be surrounded by fellow travelers who are working with you for the sake of the gospel, who will love and care for and disciple you, who will grieve and rejoice with you, who will laugh and lament with you, who will encourage you and correct you. And he's assuming that you will do those things for them too. This is a one unto another type of thing. You are not called to be a lone ranger Christian. You're called to make God's name known with the church around you. It's the way that he designed it to be. And third, you can make his name known with the mission in front of you. With the mission in front of you. Maybe you caught this in... Verses 21 and 23 that I just read, but I'm going to read them again. Listen to the purpose of that pluralistic unity. Verse 21, that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. All right, skipping the middle part there. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The unity of the church fuels its mission. With me? 
Like that's what the unity of the church is designed to do. I love the way Paul writes about this to the church in Ephesus. He, he says this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, that is we Christians, we the church. He's writing to a local church in the city of Ephesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not that we are saved by them. In the verse before, he just said, you're not saved by good works. You're saved by grace alone through faith. But he says, you're saved for good works. So Christian brothers and sisters, understand that you have a mission. God has left you on the planet for a purpose. You are not an accident. Your purpose in life is not undefined. You are not just killing time until God calls you home and you get to go to the good stuff. You're here for a reason. God prepared, Paul says in Ephesians 2, good works for you to do beforehand. Before God ever saved you, he had a plan for you. That should be powerful in your life. That, hey, I'm here for a reason. I'm not just drifting around. I've got something to do. Pastor Tim Keller up in New York writes about this and, and he links, this is so good, in, in John 17, he links this idea of mission down in verses 25 and 26 with joy up in verse 13. And what he says is, uh, this, if you're someone who has a lack of joy in your life, it's probably because you lack mission. You don't know why you're doing what you're doing. And it just robs you of joy and of motivation and of, and of pleasure in the job well done. Because why are you even doing it? Like, you're just doing this stuff to pay bills? There's got to be something more. Well, there is something more. You're designed by your creator to have a purpose and a mission in life. And that mission for the Christian is not a mystery. You're to make his name known. And, and if you will take a hold of that, and you will just spend time thinking about that, if you get people around you who will reinforce that, I promise you, it will define and clarify everything else. And it's not that you have to do what I'm doing. That is not what he means at all. This means like in the places you live, learn, work, and play every day, that you understand that part of the reason why you're there is to make known the name of God. It looks different for all kinds of different people. We'd love to help you think specifically to your situation about what that looks like. Come talk to me. I'd love for us to have coffee and just think about what does it look like for us to make God's name known in my school, in my workplace, in my neighborhood. Let's wrap up. If you're a Christian, or again, if you're someone who's considering becoming a Christian, let's assume you're convinced that Jesus' plan is to work through believers, and, and let's assume that you can see at least a little bit of how it is that he's made that possible. You have the, the Holy Spirit. You have the church. You understand the mission. I think the natural third question is, what's the result of that? What's the result of God's name being made known? Like, what's your motivation? I mean, if you're a Christian, isn't it enough that you're already saved? 
Like, now you got to get to work, too. Like, isn't the point of Christianity that I'm saved and I get to go to heaven when I die? And so everything else, like, that's kind of taken care of. Uh, you know, uh, something happened to me at VBS when I was seven, and now I'm kind of on the free roller coaster ride of life until I die or Jesus returns. Like, what's your motivation to make God's name known? It, like, if King's Cross is your home, isn't that why you give to the church so that people like me can do that for you? <laughs> like, haven't you delegated that to me? Isn't that like your responsibility is just to give to the church and to show up every now and then? And, you know, then people like me do that. No, no, no. Biblically, my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. My job, I heard a pastor say one time when I got into full-time vocational, um, you know, pastoral work, I got out of the ministry. My job now is to equip people who are in it. And that's you. So what is your motivation, like other than just blind obedience, to do this? What's the result of making God's name known? And I would contend there are quite literally an infinite number of answers to that question. Um, and I use literally there, literally, not figuratively, as is our habit these days. <laughs> but, um, there's an infinite number of answers to that question. We don't have infinite time, so I'll just show you four. Again, they're all in John 17. They're all right out of John 17. Four results of God's name being made known that I believe should be motivating to you to intentionally pursue this mission of continuing Jesus' work to make known the name of God. We'll hit them fairly quickly. First, God's name being made known results in our unity. Results in our unity both as Christians generally and as a local church family. We just touched on this a little bit. We did a whole sermon on this two weeks ago. Um, if you missed that, you can catch it online. But tied up in this idea of mission is the unity of God's people. And I would contend that that's true in every sphere of your life, is it not? You got some big project everybody's working on at work? And it comes in under budget and on deadline and the outcome is successful. Isn't that unifying to your team? You have some project that you're working on at home as a family. Maybe you're cleaning up the backyard or you're painting, you know, everybody's bedrooms over one weekend or something. And everybody's working really hard at home and things get done. Doesn't your family feel closer? We see this in, in countries, uh, you know, uh, countries during wartime, often what you see is this heightened sense of unity that comes with that. Clarity of mission, clarity of purpose is unifying for people. This is just part of who we are. So my question is, why are you here? Or if King's Cross isn't your church home, why are you there when you're at your church home? Because here's what I would say. If I'm here for me, and you're here for you, then what happens over time is we start to fight over things like preferences and, and programming. Well, I wish they would do it this way. I wish they would do that. How come they're not a little bit more of this? And, and then if I don't get my way, I just leave. And I'll go somewhere else where they do things like me. Because that's what I'm there for. I'm there for me. But if we're both here to make God's name known, then we can pursue that mission together, even where we disagree on secondary and tertiary issues. And we say, well, I might have done that a little bit different. But, but man, we're after this together. That's crystal clear. 
And that clarity of mission, that clarity of purpose is unifying. That's how come we have that vinyl graphic on the wall in the lobby that says we're a gospel community on mission for Charleston and the world. Because every time you go in and out of the door, we're trying to give you a little reminder of the reason that we're all here. Yes, we are a community unified together. And we're a community that's unified around a mission and around the gospel. Because our Unity in the mission. Our unity is found in the mission to get the gospel to people, to get people to God, and to make the name of Jesus known to people who are close to us but far from him. That's our goal. Second, God's name being made known results in their salvation. In their salvation. Jesus prays in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that's his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, if you're a Christian, that means he's praying for you. But also, as we've talked about multiple times in this series, the things that he prays for the apostles, I believe, I'm fully convinced, he's also praying for everyone who would become a Christian because he knows that the apostles are going to die off in something like about the next 60 years. He's not just praying it for them. They're the model. They're the prototype of what every believer is supposed to become. I think the clearest passage about this in the Bible to me is in Romans 10. If you're here regularly, like you probably get tired of me quoting this. It's just so powerful. Romans 10, 13 to 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And by preaching, he doesn't mean what I'm doing right now. He just means sharing the gospel, telling the gospel. And how are they to share the gospel unless they're sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So here's my question for you. If you don't take anything else away from today but this, lean in a little bit. Here's my question. Who is close to you that needs to hear so they can believe, so that they can call on the name of the Lord, so that they can be saved? And do you feel responsible for them? Do you feel a burden for them? For your friends, for your family, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, who's going to tell them if you won't? Like Jesus prayed that they would believe through your words. So what if you were considering that person or you knew they were coming over to the house, you knew you were going to go out, you knew you were going to be at work on Monday. What if you prayed, okay, Jesus, I'll talk, but I'm nervous. And so I'm just going to trust that you're going to answer your own prayer in John 17 through me. And all I'm asking you to do is what you prayed would be true. So you know that's a prayer that he'll honor. You know that. What if everyone at King's Cross did that for one person in their life? How many of those prayers might we see answered? How many baptisms might we celebrate between now and the end of the year? 
What kind of impact might we have on the Canehoy Peninsula if everybody at King's Cross just felt responsible for one person in their life? So hear me. I can't love your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers for you. Now, if you'll invite them here, I'll preach the gospel to them. They will hear the gospel. But what if Jesus was faithful to answer his own prayer? And what if you committed to make God's name known and it resulted in their salvation? Would it be worth it? You say, well, I don't know how to invite somebody to church. It's awkward. On your way out this morning on that black table and over on the left in the first impressions um, little alcove there, there are these little three-inch by three-inch invite cards. And all it says on the front is you're invited. On the back, it has a map and our service times. Grab two or three of them, take them with you. And just say to somebody, hey, man, we've had an awesome two weeks at my church. Easter was like the biggest service we've ever had. And then last week, we were all out there eating together. It's just awesome. I'm having a great time. Why don't you come? Hey, if you think about it, here's a card. Gives them a map. You don't have, like, that's enough. So grab one of those on your way out, and maybe it'll facilitate. And I, I promise you, if you invite people here, they will hear the gospel. But I'm just suggesting, what if they heard it from you? And what if Jesus was faithful to answer his own prayer? And what if because of the words you said, they got saved? Would that awkwardness be worth it to you? Third result, in God's name being made known, is your joy. Our unity, their salvation, your joy. Again, we did a whole sermon on this four weeks ago. I've already touched on it a little bit. So let me just ask you this, and, and we'll move quickly. Is there anything in the world that brings you more joy than seeing someone reconciled to God and receiving eternal life? What brings you more joy than that? Like, what's better than that? A raise at work? A new car? A perfectly cooked steak? Praise God. Like, those are good things. Yes and amen. Praise the Lord for that. But compared to somebody being saved? I mean, what are we talking about? What's more joyous than that? My favorite Sundays are baptism Sundays. Ask anybody who's on my staff. When we know that somebody needs to be baptized, one of the things people always ask is, when's the next baptism? I will do them every week. So you know when it is? As soon as the next person's ready, that's when we do it. <laughs> because why? Because there's nothing better. There's, no, there's nothing better than that. And so I will promise you this. If you will go talk to people about God, just share with them what it is that he's done in his life, in your life. Just say to a man, like, I can't tell you what God's doing in my life right now. It's so awesome, but I'm going to try. And see if that conversation doesn't bring you joy. If it doesn't, come talk to me and say, man, I talked to somebody about God and what he was doing in my life. It's the most depressing thing I've ever done. <laughs> well, okay, let's talk about that, right? Maybe you came at it from the wrong direction. But I promise you, if you just talk to people about God and what he's doing in your life, you'll feel great. Because Jesus prayed that his joy would be in you. And when we pursue the mission and we make his name known, he's already prayed that. Results in your joy. One more. 
God's name being made known results in God's glory. This is the first thing we talked about when we started this series six weeks ago, and we're going to end where we began in John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is why we do everything that we do. This is why everything that exists, exists. This is why we sing. It's why we pray. It's why we preach. It's why we serve. It's why we give. It's why we fellowship over barbecue, taste, and see that the Lord is good. You, some of you have been around for a while. You've heard me say this before. God didn't have to give you taste buds. He didn't have to do that. I promise you, you get more joy out of eating than a cow does. Why is that? Because God intended for you to have a certain kind of joy as his image bearers that he didn't give to lizards. I'm like, that's a, that's a blessing from the Lord. Sometimes ask my girls. Sometimes we'll pray, do we not? And I'll just, my entire prayer before a meal will just be, Lord, we thank you for good things like pizza. Amen. Because I'm thankful, legitimately, right? This brings God glory. When he says, I have given you these things, and you're enjoying them in the way and the time and the quantities that I intended. Praise God. Praise God for that. This is why we do. This is the end, the telos of all things, is the glory of God. It is the point of everything that is God's glory. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. We'll close with this. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You feel fragile? You're a little scared about talking to somebody? So was Paul. He said, man, I'm as fragile as a jar of clay. But let me just tell you a little bit about the surpassing power of my Jesus. And let me just let you see a little bit of the light of the glory of God in his face that I have seen that should be the goal of every Christian everywhere. That is the goal of this church, is that people would see a little bit of the glory of God. And we want you to join us in that mission so that together we might make his name known and continue the work of Christ until he returns or calls us home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Would you compel us to continue the work of Christ? Would you enable us by the power of your spirit to make your name known? What we want to proclaim is not ourself, but Christ. We need your help to do that. Some of us don't exactly know how to do that. Some of us are terrified to do that. Would, would you help us maybe to just invite somebody here?
And let that be enough of a first step that we could participate in the mission of Christ by simply allowing people to experience the people of Christ gathered together and worshiping him on a morning like this. Would you let us never take for granted the fellowship of the saints, the joy of your good gifts, and the work that Christ has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.